Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On this episode, we have Dai Dai Otaka. Dai Dai is currently an infielder at John Hopkins University. For the past four years, he's been at Yale University, where he was on the baseball team there. And because of the coronavirus situation, he was um, allowed to have another year of eligibility. So he's now doing that year currently at John Hopkins University in Baltimore. And uh, in this episode, we go over more than anything infield play. Dai Dai is really passionate about the infield position. Um, he's actually put out a, a ton of great content on social media. And if you go to his Twitter handle, at D-A-I underscore S-Q-U-A-R-E-D. If you don't remember that, don't worry. I'll post the link in the show notes too. Um, he, he gives everyone some great ideas on practices, well, drills to work on, and just situational awareness too. So I'd highly recommend you go check out his Twitter after you get done listening to this episode. In this episode, we go over different drills that he likes to do, why throwing on the run is such a vital skill to work on in practice, using training gloves, barehanding, how to get loose as an infielder, and lastly but not least, things that you should be working on on a daily basis to become the best infielder that you can be. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is Dai Dai Otaka. All right, we are now live. Uh, Dai Dai, thanks for coming on today, man. Thanks for having me. So I, I came across you on Twitter. You, you've been putting out some awesome content, infield, infield play, which is something that um, you know I never played infield. Just dabbled a little bit on at first base, but I've, I've started to dive into it a little bit more as a coach. Have you always been this passionate about just the infield position? Because I know you're still playing, and we'll get into – your career and where you're at and everything like that. But have you always been as passionate about defense and infield? Yeah, I've honestly, I've always really loved infield play just as soon as, as little as I could remember. Um, you know, I've been pretty, pretty good at infield, but I really did have to work hard to kind of get better at it. And the more I worked on it, the better I got, the more I started to love it. Um, and so I started really looking into the, the intricate parts of infield play I've been fortunate enough to be surrounded by um, some former pro baseball players. And, um, you know, when I was younger, I used to live in Tennessee in Chattanooga, which used to be the um, the minor league affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds, the Chattanooga Lookouts. Um, I think they're for the Dodgers now. But um, anyways, I used to go to those games a lot, and I used to – the players used to let me on the field and teach me in field, and then that kind of sparked it. And then as I got older, I've – dove into a lot of infield play and um, learned, learned a lot. So, yeah, I've always loved infield. So did you grow – you grew up in Tennessee. When did you move? I've, I've been all over, actually. But um, I lived there when I was six through around, like, nine or ten years old. Okay. What yeah. Did your – one of your parents have a job that required they move a lot? Yeah. Yeah, my dad's a teacher okay. uh, for a Japanese school. So, yeah, um, we were there. And then now I live in Michigan for, like, the last – 12 years, I want to say. Oh, he's a teacher for a Japanese school. Yeah. 
So what, how, why, why would he have to, why would you guys have to move around a lot because of that? Uh, so what happened was um, that school in Tennessee was going to be done after like three and a half years. It was just going to close. Um, but he decided to take the job anyways. And so we were there for that three and a half and then moved to Michigan afterwards. Okay. So yeah. you played your high school baseball in Michigan. How, I'm sure there's other people who are going to be listening to this. You, you played baseball at Yale the past four years, how everyone wants to, I mean, at least for me anyway, if you have the grades you want to play, you want to play in the Ivy league, that's going to set you up long-term the rest of your life, having that Ivy league degree, but you also get to play division one baseball. So how, how was the recruiting process? How did you get into Yale and, and get them to see you? Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting because um, I never really thought I could go to an Ivy league school when I was younger, when I was in high school. Um, you know, I always had this idea that Ivy league schools are just super, super good academic schools that I never had business getting into. Um, and yeah, they do require good, you know, grades and good scores, but, um, they have a little bit more leeway in the sports admissions. Um, and so I sent out some emails to the Ivy league schools um, Yale got back to me with an email. I sent them my schedule. They came out and watched um, some tournaments um, in Ohio, and they offered me, and I decided I want to go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, best of the best. So, but they don't in the Ivy League. They don't give scholarships. No, they don't. So it's just like you have a roster spot essentially, which was a little bit dif- different to grasp, I guess, in a sense, because some of the other offers I had were monetary scholarships um so i was like was this is this a walk-on situation what is this but no they just don't give any you know money so um it's all need-based financial aid which is very helpful um it's because it's so expensive <laughs> but yeah um yeah they, they called me and they said hey we'd like to have you They're like we have a spot for you and i said yeah i'm, I'm down so you didn't think you 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 were smart enough to get into an Ivy League school, or I shouldn't say smart. You didn't think you had the grades to get into an Ivy League school in high school. Yeah, I guess I just thought it was all supposed to be all these, you know, all A's, a thirty-six ACT, twenty-four hundred ACT or SAT. Um, that necessarily isn't the case. What um, What were your scores, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, so my GPA was a four hundred two out of four um, weighted. And then I got a 32 on the ACT. So okay. they're still solid, but. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not exactly, you know, just barely getting by. Definitely, I was definitely like the average of um, my class of getting in, like right wow. in the middle. Um, so there's definitely some, you know, variance there, but. Was st- it uh, harder than you expected it to be when you, once you got there from an academic standpoint? Definitely. My first year was a big, big kind of wake up call and a big, uh, really tough to just get used to and accustomed to. Um, just a lot of readings. You got to really, really work on managing your time. Um, you know, I went to a Catholic high school in Michigan, so it's very rigorous college prep school. Um, and you know, people always said it prepares you for college and it definitely did. I think more so than some other schools I was looking at, but, um, just when you get there, especially on top of, you know, having a full baseball schedule, um, it just throws you in the fire and, and you have to kind of go with the flow and, and learn it on the fly. Um, the fall was tough, but then the spring was tough again. And that's why it was like a full year of, 
just getting used to it because in the fall there's no games. So then you're like, all right, I just need to get used to how school is run, what the classes are like, what the exams are like. And then once spring starts, once you figure, feel like you figured it all out, you have games and you're traveling. So then you have to get that side of it. So sophomore year was definitely a lot easier. You learn to know how to study. You learn, you know, how to read, what to read, stuff like that. So in the spring, since you were, you were just saying you got, obviously you guys are traveling in the spring, would the professors work with you and and allow you to take tests at different times? Or was it, you're treated just like everybody else um we're for the most part treated like everyone else some some professors were very kind and let us take tests like at a different time especially because sometimes the baseball guys we'd have you know 10 kids in one class and if it's 10 kids and they will set up a different time if it's just one kid then you know it's not as easy Um, but they did a pretty good job I think of kind of catering to our schedules um, and helping us. But one thing that's different for Yale um, compared to some of the other schools that, um, you know, and players that I've talked to from summer ball, they get to take online classes. We didn't, t- we weren't able to take online classes in the spring. So all of ours were um, in person. Um, so we also, and we also didn't have Friday, Saturday, Sunday games other than the first three weekends of the spring. Mm-hmm. Our conference games were two on Saturday and one on Sunday. And we only played one midweek on Wednesday. So we'd have Monday off, Tuesday practice, Wednesday game, Thursday practice, Friday practice, and then two games Saturday, one game Sunday for, for league games. So that was also different, forced us to go to class and <laughs> a little bit less travel than, than other schools. How many hours of homework would you say on average you had to do a day? that's that's tough to say I mean it depends on what kind of classes you take like so for me as a political science major is mostly readings um so like four or five maybe it really depends on the day and depending on how close you were to, to midterms and finals I know for guys that do stem courses they have like a, a p set or like a practice set on you know lab reports that are taking 20 hours 22 hours a week and that's just mm. for one class and they have you know three or four other classes and I'm like how do you balance that with basically? how do you sleep like how do you do you sleep <laughs> exactly yeah it's definitely definitely tough but I don't know you can't complain it's a lot of fun so in regards to playing baseball at Yale um you played infield I know Tucker Frawley who is he he's the infield coordinator with the twins now he's the He's the associate or the assistant field coordinator. Okay. So did, did he – did you learn a lot of about the infield position, or just infield in general from him and kind of take us through maybe like your first year or two years at Yale and, and working and, and really honing in your infield knowledge? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing um, with, I guess, getting to know talk and learning from him was – kind of transferring what I was doing that I didn't really know I was actually doing and putting that into words. So like some of the actions that I did, I didn't, I hadn't really um, put them into, I guess, the cues of the vocabulary, the vernacular that we kind of see today. It would just, it just feels right. I'm just doing it. And so once he broke that down and taught me like, these are things that we're going to do. This is when you do it and stuff like that and kind of structured it a little bit better. Um, it was a lot easier to understand and, and figure out why I was doing some of these things and why some of them were good and some of them weren't as good. Um, he was really good. He's he's always a avid learner. He's always trying to learn new things. And one of the coolest things was just seeing how he progressed from his views 
my freshman year to kind of change them and kind of progressing them um, over the course of my three years with him um, and our practices um, were pretty similar for the most part, but they progressed as well and transformed into what they are now, which I mean, as, as you could probably uh, tell is just very, very effective from, you know, leading for us 2018, we led the nation in fielding percentage tied the all time record in NCAA. Wow. Yeah. And then um, my junior year, we had the most double place per game in division one. Yeah. So that was, mm. that was pretty cool. Um, and so he definitely had a lot to do with, with that, just helping us, you know, secure the ball, helping us. She's really good with practice planning um, and training economy. And that's another side that I'd really never d- dived into until I met him. And yeah, he's just ahead of the game. <laughs> how, how did, his practices evolved from year to year. Cause you said it was different each year. It seemed like he was evolving. So was there stuff by the time you were, you know, later on, I know he's, he's gone now, but before he, right before he left, was there stuff that looking back, he didn't agree with that he did early on when you were there? Um, yeah, I think one, one big change that we saw over my three years was uh, for backhands, instead of catching um, with two feet on the ground, we evolved to more of a catching with one foot on the ground and kind of catching on the run. Um, and also for one hands as well. So for backhands, a lot of times you see kids, um, you know, kind of face their shoulder towards home plate and catch the ball with two feet on the ground and kind of pushing through it that way. We did more of a like fielding with, with on one foot fielding kind of on the run as you would think, you know, Jeter would field or, um something like that but we made that a little bit more routine in a sense and so you're through when you're you're catching it on the run and then you're throwing it off one leg in the air so we what we did was we would catch on the run and sometimes throw on the run and sometimes we would gather to do like a four step or two step um so we would have so much momentum but we, we would kind of arrange that in a way so we were going towards first base um so sometimes we would throw on the run sometimes we would gather so um we would do like a shuffle or two shuffles the two-step or four-step pattern after fielding on the run um which wouldn't is it like be hard to stop yourself if you're fielding if you're a shortstop in the hole and yeah. you're fielding on the run to be able to field it on the run and then stop depending on which leg is out front on the run yeah so it, i guess it, the the way i framed it might have been a little bit difficult to understand so it's more so like harnessing that speed and that momentum and kind of turning like turning the corner is what we said and so kind of how um you know someone on a motorbike might like turn the corner by tilting their shoulder and having creating the angle that's what we would do as we caught so okay. that our momentum not necessarily stopped but we would use it to kind of slow down and set ourselves before we threw it um, a lot of these throws that we set ourselves were balls that were hit a little bit slower um, to our backhand side so we're kind of charging a little bit diagonally in versus going straight back or anything like that um, but yeah that's one really really big change that that I saw um, practice structure as well we would incorporate um, right-handed fungos left-handed fungos from pitchers we used to have just you know just righty fungo guys but we had different different hands which helps with tail and stuff like that spin um, and there's they're not as accurate obviously because they're pitchers that 
don't really coach for a living. So that also helped with variability um, with speed, but also direction. Um, we evolved to do a lot of speed work stuff before, uh, before our ground ball work, which was we would start at second base and we just field the ball when he rolled it and shuffle really fast and throw as hard as we could to first base and time it. And that was part of some of the competition that we did was just trying to be super quick with our actions. Um, and that really helped us as well. Yeah. One of the things I'm, I'm uh, if I can remember correctly, I remember, I think I know you're talking about going back to throwing on the run as you're turning, making that turn. I'm pretty sure I've seen Arenado do that um, several times. I don't know if have you seen him do that too. Oh yeah. He does that a lot. Yeah. That's, that's where I got that. That's where I get that from. Okay. I, now yeah. I see. Yeah. That's yeah. He, um, yeah. Talk definitely looked at Arenado for sure. Um, all those guys, Bregman too, touching on with one, one foot on the ground. Um, some well, crazy stat, uh, Tim DeJohn told me a little, a, a week ago, I think I want to say um, that he told me that his data team told him Arenado for 2020 season for the first 15 or so games fielded zero balls two-handed all one yeah that's, I was like wow that's crazy but yeah it just goes to show how much of a one-handed game it is but also how comfortable he is with using one hand fielding on the run and then perhaps gathering or throwing on the run so when you're practicing are you you're very rarely practicing with two hands um so we will um, for our practice, we'll have stations of fielding balls at third base, shortstop, second base, sometimes first base, depending on how we arrange the infield. But you'll go through each station, and each station will be catered to this is two-hand work, and we're, we have footwork going towards second base, or this is one hand on the run, and we're throwing to first base, or this is backhand, um, and we're setting up to first base or home plate or anything like that. Um, and so we definitely work on each, I'd say, pretty – evenly um i think a lot of times you'll see kids working on two hands so much and then they neglect their one hand or forehand i guess and then backhand side and they become weaker in those um, realms but because the game is so one hand driven i think working on the others just as much or even a little bit more than the two hand is very very beneficial one of the things that i i, I was doing before we started doing this podcast just getting ready i was watching a video on kai Correa, and um he was basically going through a practice where he would throw different balls with different weights so some were lighter balls some were heavier balls i thought that was interesting it was similar to hitting where you sometimes use overload bats sometimes underload bats have you done that in infield and if you have you know what what did you think of that afterward i've actually never done that before yeah. Um, I've seen videos of it. I know Billy Boyer, he's the um, infield coordinator for the Twins. He, he loves doing weight, different weights for hand circuits from machines. And so his um, thought process is that obviously heavier balls, you're going to be able to feel where you catch it a little bit more than lighter balls. Um, and so that's going to help you kind of figure out where it's best to catch the ball and how to catch it there every single time. I've actually never tried it. I would like to and see, you know, do I like it? Do I not like it? You know, are there things to tw tweak? So I'm interested to try that out. What, what's your routine would you, in a typical practice? If you, could, if you could design the practice, what would, it, what would uh, the routine be for infielders? Mm. 
you know, that's, that's tough because it depends on, like, the, the age, the skill level. How, how about, how about Dada, just for you? For, I would just say for me. you. Yeah. Practicing for me. Um, yeah. So what I've done um, this summer practicing is I like to do hand circuits to start off, um, usually on my knees. And I use the Valley Training Glove, the Pancake. The, uh, I want to say it's the KK is what it's called. So it's like a thinner pancake-type glove, but you're able to squeeze. It's not just flat and hard. It's um, pretty flexible. And so that kind of allows me to um, make sure I'm catching in the right spot. But it's light. It's almost bare hand, but not necessarily bare handed. I know you asked the question of um, should you use bare handed? Should you, you know, do drills bare handed? Um, I think it can be good for balls right at you in the two hand lane where you feel it with two hands because when you do catch it, it's like in this area. But for one hands and back hands, you're going to be wanting to catch in the pocket right here, which if you do it barehanded, it's really hard to grab it like this. And so that glove, because there's a little web right here, you're able to catch it um, in the right spot without creating bad habits of catching it, you know, where your palm of the glove would be. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not too big on barehanded stuff. I think it's good for just focusing in general and just making sure that they're seeing the ball in, but not necessary for the catching aspect of it. Um, so then I would do on these hand circuits of just two hand, one hand backhand lane. And then what I really liked, um, recently is a rocker step hand circuit. So I get on my feet and you know, the heel to toe action of toe up in the air, And as you catch, you come down and that's how you get that momentum and gain ground towards first base. Even if your feet are stopped, or even if you go to the, to balls on the right and you feel the two hands and you don't have momentum going towards first base, that's what allows you to get that momentum to throw and kind of move towards first base. And so when I do those hand circuits, I'll do a rocker step and I'll field five. And then on my fifth one, I'll do my two step and four step pattern in first base. And that kind of helps me time it up really well so that I'm actually, um, you know, kind of like hitting, right? Like if you get your foot down too early, you feel a little off. Um, just trying to time that up really well. So that's the rocker step. Um, and then from there, I just go straight into ground balls. I don't really have a machine or anything. So if I had a machine, I would love to do machine work. But as you go to ground balls, um, I'll do just two hands, one hands, back hands. Um, depending on the ball, I'll decide as the ball is hit. And depending on like the trajectory, the speed, the bounce and stuff like that, if I'm going to field it, you know, on the run, or if I'm going to field it with two feet on the ground, stuff like that, which essentially is infield play is just seeing the ball. And, and deciding right it's decision making so i'll do that and then i'll sometimes i'll do double play work um but that's usually how i do it mostly a shortstop recently um i know at yale we did at every position to kind of just because everyone was so versatile and with injuries people would play everywhere but also because of shifts um i'm not too sure how much johns hopkins shifts so um, I've kind of just been feeling around the shortstop area, moving just a little bit here and there. Well, do, you, do you have any advice for for kids who are learning how to turn turn double plays or anything like that? Like maybe like we talk about like middle infielders. Uh huh. Um. Yeah. So I guess one thing that I learned from Tuck that really really hit with me and that I've kind of um, what that is very important over the last couple of years playing is just, I used to try to be too quick with double plays because you're thinking I need to get two outs on one play. 
uh, but it's more so just slowing it down uh, counterintuitively and for the feeder, giving a really good feed at a 75% speed. So I used to try to go 110%. My feeds were really bad, so the second baseman would have to, you know, like reach for a ball, and then that would make their time slower, and then thus we wouldn't get the out. So then just slowing it down so that my feeds were accurate so the second baseman could be as fast as he could. And so when I transferred over to second base my sophomore year from shortstop, I kind of understood that because I was on the other side of it, just having better feeds. Um, having it a little bit slower was able to, I was able to be a lot quicker on the back end. Um, you know, there's, it's very double plays. I really love second base double plays. Um, just because I've been playing it for the last three years. Um, just, and, and because it's so intricate because depending on where the balls hit to the shortstop or third baseman, depending on, I guess, where they are depth wise, their strengths of, you know, let's say they're a third baseman. Do they throw a really low arm slot and do the, does their ball tail a lot or are they more over the top and it's straight shortstop? How do they flip? Are they flipping from kind of behind you at second base or are they a little bit more closer to you? Depending on that and their strength of the flips and your communication with them, your footwork at second base differs a lot. Right. And so um, every second baseman I feel like has a basic uh, bucket of footwork around the base that they really go to. Um, but for me, like, for example, if a shortstop is a little bit more, um, I guess to my right. So I'm at second base and there's a ground ball to shortstop and he's a little bit deeper and he's flipping it to me. I like to come across the base because, and I like to have him kind of flip on the other side of the base, because if I wait for the ball to come and drop into my glove, that's an extra, you know, 10th of a second that I might not get. But if I kind of come across my feet are moving I catch the ball at the top instead of at the bottom of the flip. Then I catch it quicker. My feet are down, but they're still moving. So I don't have to create any momentum going towards first base. And I can throw to first base for a double play. Stuff like that. Just like very, you know, different things depending on how early you get there with shifts. How late do you get there late? If you get there late, you might have to catch it on the run and throw it on the run. Um, I don't know. There's just a lot that goes into it. So it's hard to say like what you can work on necessarily just a lot of reps feeling what's what's right for you but making sure you're not trying to go too fast i think is <laughs> the best yeah. i can say I, I think and i think a big part of, of baseball in general is at a certain point you can only do so much in practice and then the game is going to um allow you to take your skills to the next level and it's gonna the game is gonna teach you um, because you just you, it's tough to replicate every single scenario what you're talking about right now in practice mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, throwing and building arm strength and different arm angles um, sometimes you don't always hear that a ton in the infield I'm sure maybe for really good infield coaches that they bring that up but just for someone like myself who doesn't you know always into the infield play I don't hear it a ton what what do you guys do when it comes to building arm strength and practicing from different arm angles? Yeah, um, practicing arm strength, we didn't really do too much regarding like the arm strength portion, mostly just in the weight room. From my experience, I really like doing band work to strengthen up my shoulders and then just long toss. But um, with regards to arm slots, we would work on different arm slots a lot, mostly during ground ball work. I know you had Tyler Gillum on your podcast and he was talking about catch play routines and throwing from, you know, each arm slot within his 15 minute slot of catch play. Um, 
for us, we had an eight minute, we had eight minutes of throwing. Um, we did do some what, of what we called shelf work this past year, um, which is you kind of go like top shelf, middle shelf, lower shelf of kind of three different arm slots. But with tuck, it was, you could kind of throw from any arm slot during catch play. But then once we got to ground balls, we had, I guess, different arm slots depending on what type of play that we had. So if it was like, if you were working on two-step patterns, naturally we need to work on a lower arm slot. And so that's when we would incorporate that. Or, um, you know, if it's a backhand, we need to get tall. So that's, that's when we work on the arm slot. Um, so he was more like using the external cues to help us self-organize. Um, my coach this year was more so like the internal cues and kind of working on it beforehand and priming it so that when we did go to ground balls, we were able to throw and be comfortable throwing from each of those arm slots. When you are warming up and just throwing, is there a certain distance you're trying to get to or you're trying to throw to, or is it just depending on how you feel that day? There's a lot that depends on how I'm feeling that day. Um, I usually go try to go at least 120 to 150 feet with my partner, depending on how we feel because we throw every day. Um, but so, you know, sometimes I go farther, but at least 120 feet for sure. Most okay. likely 150. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah. That's it's, you know, again, we're learning new stuff all the time, especially with the, the infielders and um, you know, just picking stuff up from you and looking at your Twitter feed and, and we'll make sure to link that too. But for, for kids who are out there um, coaches too, what, what advice would you give them just from a holistic point of view of, of de- how to develop infielders and, and practice, creating some practice plans and, and just looking at it from a broader sense versus just the typical hit ground balls to everyone. Mm. Yeah, that's tough. I think, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you face with this, this with hitting as well is, you know, it's different for every player, different for everyone's skill level and what they're comfortable with and their, um, you know, how they move, their movement patterns are different for, for everyone. Right. And so you see guys that, um, you know, hit from different positions, these different stances, but there are some things that they, they do similarly, similarly, the commonalities within their swing of, you know, how do they get to, to their load, their swing and stuff like that. And so I think the same thing goes for infield plays that there's going to be some variances in how people field. If you watch someone like JJ Hardy, he was a lot more, um, he, he looked a little bit more stiff, I guess. He wasn't as smooth as, let's say, someone like, you know, Baez or something like that. But he won a gold glove at shortstop so many years because he was so good at just catching the ball and throwing it and throwing it hard and throwing it accurately. And so to a certain extent, and this is something that I've been trying to toy with too, is I used to think, you know, a good infielder was someone that had rhythm and someone that was really smooth. But a good infielder – essentially is just someone that has a lot of range, right. That can catch everything that hits their glove and get, can throw it really hard and accurately. And they can get, just get more outs than the person next to them. Um, they don't, you know, rhythm and smoothness is definitely awesome, but there are extras that aren't necessarily uh, needed to be a good infielder, a quote, quote unquote, good infielder. I think it can be a byproduct of having efficient actions, but when you watch guys like Hardy or you watch guys like, uh, you know, Ahmed who necessarily isn't known for their smoothness, but they just catch everything, right. That's what's really important. So for practice plans and general practice plan, just making sure that you really focus on the catching the ball and seeing, 
balls off the bat, whether it's BP, if you can, um, machine work, if you can, and even fungos. Um, I think sometimes you really, really, as coaches try to get into drill work, drill work, drill work of, we got to do these ladders. We need to do these med ball stuff. We need to do, um, these, this, all this stuff that how much does it really relate to hitting or fielding? Right. And so like hitting, if, if you're just doing T work, if you're just doing, you know, front toss, like how does that relate to actually seeing pitches in a game? It really doesn't as much. Yes. It works on, you know, specific swing patterns, right. And infield, it can help infielders have the right movement patterns for glove presentation or full work. But if you're not actually getting ground balls and seeing the hops and making decisions, then you're not getting as good as you want to. So just focus on that decision-making portion, I think is really important. That's great advice. I think as, as coaches, everyone always wants the, the new drill, you know, what's the new drill, uh, just being obsessed with drills and, and thinking that drills fix everything, but it's really, it's not the drill, at least from a hit. I know from a hitting standpoint, it's the, the thought process during the drill. So um, that, that was greatly said by you. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was, was with all the shifts going on, especially at the professional level, how much should coaches be practicing with their players um, in different positions. I mean, I don't know if you saw the other day where Manny Machado made that catch on the right field line, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is, I mean, unbelievable. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, how, how often should I, should they be practicing in weird positions that are maybe not even really in the, in the infield? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely uh, a really good question. I don't necessarily know the answer to, to be quite honest. I don't have the data to back anything up. Um, and I also, you know, it depends on how often teams shift right? Like I know for, for Yale, we definitely shifted a lot more than some of the other Ivy league teams. Um, like you said, in major leagues, everyone's shifting a lot more. Um, I'm curious to see how often they practice shifting because yes, even if you do shift a lot, um, you don't want to take away from your, from seeing balls in your normal position. Um, right. And what do you even you know say is a normal position? So it really depends. I think with Machado and that he can kind of be anywhere. And as long as he's seen a few reps, he's athletic enough to be able to make those catches and uh, make those plays. Even when he's at a different spot, it's more so just kind of seeing balls off the bat just a little bit before games. Uh, I think the toughest part, as you've probably seen, um, whether it's on Instagram or Twitter, the last uh, season is those crazy double plays where the second baseman's kind of catching a backhand behind the back, flipping it to a shortstop that's like running all the way from deep short, fielding it or uh, catching the ball on the feed from second baseman, turning that double play um, relays that are just crazy because um, they're so out of, out of line. Um, one of the double plays I saw a few days ago that a buddy sent me was there was a lefty up and huge shift to the right side, like second baseman, third baseman, and then shortstop was like right behind the base ground ball to second base, the third baseman straight off the bat, even though it was just two's left he started running towards third base because he knew with a runner on first and, you know, a chance for a double play, if they screwed up, they bobbled it or something, the runner could go to third base. So like working on that stuff is really important. Not so much as getting the kind of looks off the bat, something that you can do in BP, not necessarily something that I think you need to practice too much. But again, I don't, I don't really know too, too well if that's, you know, accurate or, what major league teams do. So uh, 
you're at John Hopkins now. You, you transferred because of COVID, so you got that extra year of eligibility. Um, are, are you are you coaching the infielders while you're there, or I mean? Uh, so our fall was canceled. It's like no no one's allowed to be on campus, so um, I haven't really been able to meet any of the guys there. I don't think I'll really be the coaching per se. I think I'll just work, focus on. Um, playing and practicing and then just trying to get better and get that starting spot personally. But I know at Yale because of my seniority and just being there under top for three, two, you know, three years, I was able to kind of help the freshmen and the sophomores when they came in um, a little bit to kind of give them my knowledge and the kind of the way that we ran things at Yale a little bit more just because, you know, I had been there for some time. I think at Johns Hopkins, I don't think I'll really be doing that because it's my first year and I'm essentially going to be a freshman. Um, so yeah, that's tough, man. That I didn't, I didn't, did they cancel fall ball across all college baseball? Uh, no, I know a lot of, um, teams are starting up fall ball now. I don't know how much, how many players they're allowed to have. I don't think some schools say no fall competition. Some schools just say like four to five players each for us. They just canceled everything for the fall, which is unfortunate, but you know, to be truthful, if, we have to forego fall to have a spring, then I'm all for it. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see. Gotcha. Dad, I appreciate it, man. This has been a lot of fun. Um, you know, glad we got to connect and, you know, I know you mentioned uh, DJ, you know, Tim, um, he's, he's a great guy. He's very knowledgeable. So definitely would recommend staying in touch with him from an infield perspective. I know I've picked up some good nuggets along the way. So again, just appreciate you coming on today, man. I know you're, you're busy with schoolwork and, um, you know, still trying to stay in shape for baseball for a spring. So appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. It's, it was a lot of fun talking infield and, um, hopefully we can keep this relationship going. Absolutely. My man. Thanks for listening to another episode of Patrick Jones baseball. Make sure to go subscribe on iTunes so you can stay up to date on the latest trends and techniques being taught in player development. Until next week, hope everyone stays safe.